we're here this morning to do a, a good work. It's an important work, because I'm assuming if you're here, uh, most, of all, most of all of you are assuming that reading and intaking and interpreting and implying God's word is an important thing for your life. Uh, but as you all know, there are many different genres to the 66 books of the Bible. So we all know genre intuitively, whereas we don't necessarily pick and interpret well throughout the Bible all the time. We all know it, though. If, I mean, if you hear Ryan preach regularly, it's his voice spoken to you. But if you were to meet him for lunch at Taco Cabana, which is regular, uh, if you sat down to hear his voice, uh, you wouldn't expect him to pull out 15 pieces of paper and say, this afternoon I have four peas for you. Uh, and, and he's just going to talk at you for 45 minutes. No, it's, it's a different genre of speech. Um, he wouldn't do that. You wouldn't expect him to. You would read his sermon manuscripts differently than you would read his emails to you. You would read his emails to you differently than you would read his love notes to Sarah. Right? These are all different genres and must be read differently. And the Bible is no different. We intuitively do this with different types of reading that we do daily. Blogs, newspaper articles, uh, emails. Uh, but because of our being thousands of years removed and, to be honest, our familiarity with the Bible... Uh, its stories, its poetry, and, and, and such, uh, we can often read Genesis the same way that we read Proverbs. And because we all love Paul, uh, we can take our expectations for Pauline epistles and import those expectations on Ecclesiastes, uh, which the biblical writers had no intention for us to do. Uh, so this morning we're going to think about the gospel genre. And this genre, obviously, the the genre that includes the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this genre is tricky. It's really tricky. Uh, Maybe the most difficult to preach from. Uh, I think we, we don't think of it as super tricky because we know these stories perhaps the best out of the entire Bible. We know everything from these gospel accounts uh, on the felt board, right? From our earliest years, years in Sunday school to now. We know this well, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we always can interpret it well. So this is a tricky genre, and that's why we're going to spend a good three hours on it this morning. Before I do that, because this is so tricky, and because this is God's word, let me ask for God's help for our time this morning. God, we're thankful for your word to us. You did not have to reveal yourself to us. You would have been uh, completely good and right to remain aloof from us, But you didn't. You not only revealed uh, yourself to us in your great power and your might through nature, but you have revealed revealed yourself to us uh, through your word, revealing your character, your love, and your patience, and your steadfast kindness to your people. And Father, you have most revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. We know who you are by looking at Jesus. And we do that primarily through these four gospel accounts. So we pray that we would, uh, three hours from now, leave this room with a better understanding of who Jesus is, and we might, for the rest of our lives now, be better equipped to understand him, worship him, love him, love you, and love our neighbor as a result. So we pray all these things for our good and for your glory. Jesus' name. Amen. So really quickly, uh, let's see if we can come up 
just together, spitballing here, uh, with all or most of the different kinds of genre in the Bible? What do we got? Narrative. Narrative. Poetry. Poetry. Epistle. Apocalyptic. So like Revelation or Ezekiel. Anything else? What's that? Historical, yeah, historical narrative. And perhaps we might do a little bit of uh, differentiation between just poetry and just other wisdom literature. Uh, The Proverbs might be considered poetry, but we might just put them in a larger wisdom category. What makes the Gospels so tricky is that they include nearly, nearly all, if not all, of those genres that we just included. Uh... They're not, they don't fit neatly into the other genres that we have because they include them all. We've got wisdom. Uh, we've got many wisdom sayings of Jesus and the Beatitudes. We've got apocalyptic, certainly. Jesus is, uh, in Matthew 24, he, uh, in other places, he, he's telling of the way of the end times. Um, we've got narrative. We've got almost epistle or didactic teaching. Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, So this is different than nearly everything else that we have in the Bible. So we need some principles to how how to understand and read these things. So uh, about a year and a half ago uh, at our Simeon Trust workshop, um, almost two years ago, no, this was almost a year ago, Ryan came up with 10 principles for us to read gospel accounts. So we're going to go through those this morning. Uh, I've used his 10 principles, but kind of expanded a bit because he did these in about 10 minutes uh, at at one of those sessions. So we're going to go through 10 principles through reading the gospel accounts. So we're just going to go through those in the next 45 minutes or so. The first one is to read them as eyewitness accounts. This may be obvious, but in our near post-Christian world, this is not so obvious. Uh, Luke especially emphasizes this. And and he says in in chapter 1 of verse 2 of his account, he says, he set out to compile a narrative from eyewitnesses. We should assume that these gospel accounts are accurate and true. There's no need to be suspicious of errors or obsess about something. Uh, Maybe you've heard of something called the synoptic problem. Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're basically, they're very similar in the way they're arranged. And many people are like, will find differences in the Synoptic Gospels and be like, well, this is a huge problem. How do we reconcile these? Uh, we don't have to worry or obsess. And we'll talk a little bit more about this throughout the morning. But uh, in a book that's in your bibliography, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Bauckham confronts the idea that these were somehow mythological stories that were written or, or compiled maybe two, three, four centuries after the time of Christ, um, just somewhere from around the Greco-Roman world. And he does this uh, by a number of different ways. Uh, let me just ask you a question. If I were to ask you to write a contemporary novel, uh, 2015 America, what are some of the names of what, what might the first name of your protagonist be? It's supposed to be contemporary. Your protagonist is 28. What would you name him? Chris. Any other? 
names you might throw out there? Come on, there's no creativity in this room. Nathan, Nathan. yeah. <laughs> what if I were to ask you now to set your novel, not in 2015 New Mexico, but in 1790s Virginia? What might you name your protagonist? William, George, my guess is you, you could probably come up with a, probably a pretty uh, true-to-time protagonist, but once you started filling out all the characters in your novel, once you got through all the founding fathers and their wives, you'd probably run out of names, right? Because you don't really know who, or who was named what popularly in the 1790s in Virginia. What if I asked you to now set your novel, not in 1790s Virginia, but in 1790s Yugoslavia? What might you name your protagonist? Not doing so well? Uh, You wouldn't be able to come up with any, right? And you certainly would not uh, be able to name your characters as if they were the most popular names of the time in 1790s Yugoslavia. Bakum, in his book, Jesus and the eyewitnesses through the work of some secular historians has shown that whoever wrote the gospel accounts must have been present uh, within the context that the stories took place or taken down the material from people who were. Uh, if these were men in, the, uh, in Rome in the year 350 or something, like many are suggesting these days, as in like the Da Vinci Code, Uh, the names would not not have been all that accurate to time. But through some work of some secular historians, we've now found out that the the names and the frequency in in which they occur uh, in the gospel accounts mirror the frequency that the names would have appeared in popularity in the Palestinian world. Uh, Names change in popularity in our culture. You know, like my grandparents' generation... Nora and Lola were common, and then those went out of style for a good 70 years, and now many under five-year-olds are being named Nora and Lola again. Names are cyclical, and they change in popularity. It's highly unlikely that the gospel writers, by the names they use, but also in the geographical and historical detail they include, uh, were just making things up as they went. They're very true to history, Uh, and Ryan mentioned last week uh, the inclusion of Rufus and Alexander. It seems that there's no reason to, for Mark to include Rufus and Alexander uh, if it, unless he was seeming to say, hey, yeah, you, you guys all know about Rufus and Alexander in Jerusalem. You don't believe the way I wrote this story? Go ask them, right? Uh, so we should not think of the gospel accounts as the telephone game, as is usually or often and commonly suggested today, uh, you know, the, the old game, where ten of us sit in a circle and I whisper and then it goes around and then we all laugh at the tenth person because how ridiculous it's gotten, right? Uh, it's a message that change grows, gets corrupted as it goes on, as you might hear from the Da Vinci Code. Uh, the writing down of the gospel accounts after several decades of oral tradition is not the telephone game. Why? The, telego- the t- telephone game has rules which will ensure the corruption of its message, right? What are some of these rules? Uh, You can only whisper it. You can only say it once. You can only hear it from one person. These are rules which will ensure its corruption. 
Uh, this is not at all the way the oral tradition of Jesus' teaching and ministry were kept. Instead of the telephone game, we should uh, probably more likely th- or more think of the oral tradition as something like karate. How's that? Uh, there's discipline, there's correction, there's accountability. No one says that karate must be corrupted uh, over the centuries because just time, right? There is discipline and correction and accountability with how karate or some other discipline is passed down throughout the decades and centuries. And I think the same could be true of the oral tradition until it was finally encapsulated with pen and paper. So our faith depends on the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts. We we know this, right? Namely, the resurrection, without which, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christianity falls apart, and not only Christianity falls apart, but we should be most pitied. We should be almost mocked for being so stupid and gullible to place our entire lives of a so-called resurrected Christ who is just a dead skeleton in the ground, right? Without the trustworthiness of the resurrection, without the trustworthiness and reliability of these four gospel accounts, our entire faith falls apart. But we have great reason to trust in their reliability. So, uh, read them as eyewitness accounts. The second thing is that we should forget harmonizing with the other three. Uh, Maybe you know what I mean, maybe you don't. So, uh, to put more mildly, we we should say that we we should read these gospel accounts, each four gospel accounts individually, not just in harmony. We should not just uh, think, hey, how does, how does this compare with the other three? God gave us four. He could have given us one, but he didn't. Uh, in this book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, it's a uh, book written by one of my seminary professors and my former pastor in Louisville. Uh, he writes this. I'll read just a little bit here. Imagine that you're an alien who lands in the middle of the Bible Belt in the American South. You've been sent to research the religions of Earth, and you're, staring, or starting with Christianity. You begin to read the Christian holy writings called the New Testament, and you find that, not surprisingly, it begins with the life story of Jesus the Christ, the founder of Christianity. You greatly enjoy reading this informative book called The Gospel According to Matthew. It seems to give a comprehensive understanding of who this Jesus figure was. But imagine your surprise when you turn to the next page and you see another book with a similar title, this time called The Gospel According to Mark. You're a little taken back, but you press forward. You read it with pleasure. You notice that this one is quite a bit shorter than the first and doesn't have as much teaching from the person of Jesus. Also, there are a few different elements, but the basic storyline is the same, and you're not overly disturbed. You're not quite sure why there are two accounts of Christianity's founder, but then you almost fall off your alien green chair when you finish Mark and turn the page over to find yet a third account, the gospel according to Luke. What's going on? Are these Christians confused about what happened with their own spokesperson? Maybe there are different factions or sects within Christianity, and these are the particular documents of each. Undeterred, you dive in, and again you find this gospel story to be very engaging. You notice some totally new aspects in it, and yet there are, again, many obvious similarities with the others you've read. Moreover, like the previous two accounts, the story consistently focuses on the end, on the death and resurrection of the central character, Jesus. Finally, you turn the page once more, and you are almost not surprised anymore to find yet another book with the title, The Gospel According to John. You admire the narrative productivity of these Christians and are beginning to expect that their holy book in its entirety must be full of writings titled The Gospel According to Fred and Tony and Paul and Jim. 
This time, however, you don't have to read very far into the fourth gospel to see quite a few differences. The narrative style and use of language are different, and there is very little overlap of content, around 8%, according to your spaceship supercomputer's calculation. Compared to John, the previous three look a lot like, despite their differences. They look a lot alike, despite their differences. Yet again, at least there is consistent focus on the hero's last week of life, his death, and his rising from the grave. Uh, Pennington will go on with this alien uh, illustration for a while. The point is, is that God gave us four. And at first glance, and certainly if you're an alien looking on this, you're like, why? Why would he give us four? Why not just have, if you're God and the Holy Spirit, why not just have Matthew, the disciple who was with Jesus, just tell us what happened and be done with it. Let's move on to Acts. Well, Uh, The church very early on denounced any attempt at a conglomerated jumbo gospel. Many tried. There was these four gospel accounts, and then in later centuries, um, other gospel accounts, which showed some historical inaccuracies and some reasons to doubt their reliability. Uh, But many tried to combine all of these. Just let's, you know, when Mark and John and Luke are telling the same story about uh, the wind and the waves and the centurion. Let's just, let's just put that into one story. The church denounced these because they recognized the uniqueness of each one. Uh, in Calvin's commentaries, he has one volume on the Gospels, um, which I think does a great disservice to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's combined his commentary on all four. Many keep trying to harmonize uh, and to combine But I tell our youth kids all the time that our God does not waste words. Uh, He doesn't waste words with the prophet Joel. He does not waste words with um, Song of Solomon. He does not waste words with the book of the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Each are necessary. Uh, There are things in Matthew that we don't get from Mark and things in John that we don't get from Luke. This is the point that Ryan was making at the crucifixion scene in Mark last Sunday. Mark isn't necessarily concerned about the thief's confession next to Jesus or John and Mary at the foot of the cross. We lost this. Um, Why? Not because Mark wasn't aware of these events. Not, Not because Mark was like, wait, the guy next to Jesus on the cross actually like seemingly put his faith in Jesus? I did not know that. That's amazing. Uh, not Mark, Mark surely was aware of this story. Uh, it's not as if, if, as if Matthew and Luke would have read Mark and thought, oh, Mark, <laughs> oh, poor Mark, if he only had the whole picture. No, surely not. Mark is making a point, as Ryan mentioned, of the darkness of it all. He's making a, a point in what he's telling us, which gets us to our next point. Uh, whoops. We lost a slide. Well, the third point should be uh, to read them as fact and interpretation of fact. Uh, anybody a big history reader out there or a biography, biography reader? Anybody? Nobody? I like to read biographies. Uh, and typically, uh, somebody tell me, maybe there's an introductory chapter on George Washington's life, but then... Generally, what would you expect chapter one or chapter two to be about in a biography written in contemporary America? 
his birth and childhood, right? And then what's the last chapter about? Maybe a conclusion uh, looking back on all the events of his life, but what's the last chapter about? His deathbed, right? Uh, this is the way we write history in the West and certainly in uh, contemporary American culture. Uh, start at the beginning, end at the end. Not so with ancient historians. Uh, our histori- history- historiography is obsessed with chronology in a way in which uh, ancient historians and certainly the gospel writers were not. One of the most, uh, one of the ways we see this reality most played out is the placement of events and scenes. The choice of and the order of stories is not simple chronology. They had no problem breaking the chronological order so that they could put certain stories together. Their placement and arrangement of these stories or sermons, uh, not to mention their language and emphases and structure that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are using as they write, have interpretive value for us in how to interpret what we're reading. For example, Matthew's five sermons. We'll make mention of these later. Uh, There are five sermons that Jesus gives within the book or the gospel according to Matthew. Five major teaching sections from Jesus scattered throughout Matthew's gospel account. This is not accidental. Uh, He is very likely in showing Jesus as the new and greater Moses that Jesus is giving a new Pentateuch, a new law for his people. Did the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 come chronologically before John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah in Matthew 11? I don't know, and I don't care. It doesn't matter. Uh, Here's another way to put it. The gospel writers preach What you're reading in these four accounts is not just a history. It's a sermon. They're preaching. They don't just record or inform historical events. So as readers and as students, we're not just collecting Jesus facts, but we're actually reading or listening to a sermon. Even in just the first few chapters of Matthew's narrative, he is doing some heavy-duty preaching. Even... In the genealogy of Matthew 1, this is not just a record of people that you might find on Ancestry.com. This is preaching what Matthew is doing. And the people he's highlighting, and the generations that he's highlighting, and in light of considering all of Israel's history played out through the genealogy of chapter 1, then he goes in to say that Jesus is actually going to repeat the history of Israel. Like Israel... Uh, He is born in the land of Palestine, but grows in his youthful years in Egypt. He's taken down to Egypt. And then Matthew, very kind of out of context, and what's he doing? He says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Uh, What is Matthew doing there? Uh, He's saying, well, Jesus is kind of like Israel, being called out of Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. He goes through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, just as they did in the Red Sea. Paul connects baptism and uh, the Red Sea crossing in 1 Corinthians 10. He spends 40 days in the wilderness rather than 40 years as Israel did. And he, unlike them, actually obeys. He's delighting in God the Father alone and worshiping him rightly as Father, where Israel failed miserably. He quotes Deuteronomy Deuteronomy three times to Satan in the wilderness. This is not just a 
uh, memorize a few scripture memory verses to fight off Satan that Matthew is giving us. No, he's saying Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed in the, wil- in the wilderness. And then he comes back across the Jordan from the wilderness of the east and begins his conquest of the land and the bringing of God's kingdom. Jesus is the true Israel. Matthew is preaching. Preaching. He's not just telling us a history of events. So, don't let any one scene be detached from its literary context, the scenes which happen before and after. Each scene is part of a narratival sermon. John says he left parts out. If we told all the events of Jesus' life, they would fill all the rooms. The library's filled of what would, would have happened. So, if that's true, why did the gospel writers include the events that they did? It's not just some cool magic tricks that Jesus did. So, uh, yeah, these are not just the telling of facts, but the interpretation of facts. The fourth thing that we need to think about is we should probably forget specialized audiences. Uh, who, who was 1 Corinthians written to? When Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, who was he writing to? The Corinthians. Who did he write Ephesians to? The Ephesians, right? The church at Ephesus. Uh, the epistles, or the letters, are often referred to, referred to as occasional letters, meaning not that they happen occasionally, but that there was an occasion which prompted Paul or Peter or John uh, or whomever is writing the letter to write to that church. There's something going on within that church Uh, that Paul felt he needed to confront or teach about. Um, They were confronting something specific. Now, of course, the specific occasion of the epistles doesn't prevent us from applying these texts in our lives today. So if you want to think more about that, go back and listen to this workshop on epistles. But for the last several hundred years or so, many interpreters have assumed that the gospel writers had similar occasions Uh, and audiences in mind when they wrote their gospel accounts. For example, Mark was written to Gentiles in Rome under persecution during Nero's reign before AD 70. And so he's encouraging these Roman Christians uh, as they go through persecution. Uh, They speak of a Markan community to which Mark is writing, or a Matthean community, Matthew, or a Lucan community, right? Those who insist on and make much of specialized audiences stress that like Mark uses a bunch of Latin phrases. Uh, some of the Jewish customs are explained. And in, that Matthew, for instance, is writing to a primarily Jewish audience who are fluent with the Old Testament and Jewish customs. I think, based on uh, another book in your bibliography from Rich, Richard Bauckham, The Gospel for All Christians, that we should stop thinking in such a way. Uh, we should probably think about the gospel accounts as they were written for the most broadest possible audience for wide, with wide distribution and with multiple purposes. This is fundamentally a genre issue. Um, gospel, the word gospel, or literally good news or glad tidings is exactly that. Roman emperors or others with a special sense of self-importance in the day would send out good news accounts of their life. It would not have been 
it would not have been entirely unexpected for Caesar Augustus to write a narrative history of his life and the goings-on and his conquests um, and send it out to the empire as a gospel account of Caesar Augustus. Uh, This genre would not have been entirely unfamiliar. How the person was born, what they did, what they accomplished. Uh, So this wouldn't be entirely new. What would be new is the heavy reliance on eyewitness testimony, eyewitnesses who Matthew is going to refer to throughout, as well as how the gospel not so subtly paint Jesus as not just an important figure, but the most important figure in the history of the world. The only reason to write a gospel account is because you want the entire world to know about it. Uh, Just like Augustus wanted the entire world to know of him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, undoubtedly anticipated, desired, and wanted a worldwide, immensely broad uh, audience, not just the little church that they happened to be pastoring at the time. So for now, it's okay if you still disagree with that, but um, uh, we're all better served by pouring over the actual words in front of us. I think many of us can often, uh, especially with the more commentaries we read, Uh, bringing an assumption about the community to which these guys are writing and the specific uh, context that they're trying to confront here. Uh, We should just probably stop, (laughs) okay? Uh, Perhaps many of you, what I just talked about was a waste of five minutes because you've never thought about the Markin or Mathean community. But for those of you who have. Next, number five. Uh, Don't forget they're about Jesus. This may seem as obvious as possible, and that we can probably just move on to number six, but we shouldn't. Uh, We think these gospel accounts are often about us. Uh, We move too quickly to us today, rather than focusing on who the gospel account is actually about, which is Jesus. Somebody, um, can we open, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 8. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. As we listen to this, I want you to think about how uh, very likely not at DSC, but perhaps in younger years of your life, think about how you have heard this sermon preached, what the application can often be. Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him. How, how have you heard this applied? What, what, what should we take out of here on a Sunday morning now for, with us for our lives from this, these sh- few short verses? So Jesus will calm the storms in your life, right? Uh, think about all the different storms in your life um, and just, just rest, man. Uh, he'll, he'll make everything all right, right? And while that is 
about him, right? He will be the one that is calming the storms. Uh, it's primarily about you, the storms of your life, right? Uh, we very quickly move from us or to us to today uh, without first reflecting on what's the point of this story? Why did Matthew include this? Remember, there's thousands of, of stories just like this that Jesus displayed his might and power that Matthew didn't include. So why did he include this? How does the scene end? What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Mark, uh, Mark does something similar in his retelling of this, and we saw the predominant emphasis throughout almost every scene in the gospel according to Mark is, who is this man? I'm going to build the questioning and expectation so that in chapter 8, when Peter says, you are the Christ, it's like, whoa, okay, now we've done something here. Uh, secondarily, in the gospel according to Mark, is to who is this man, is now how shall we respond to him? Hopefully, as Peter did, maybe even a little bit differently than Peter did. And what significance does this have, let alone how does this just make me a better person, right? So in Matthew, we might say that Matthew is asking, how is this man the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the beginning of time? Another way to word this principle of, don't forget they're about Jesus, uh, is to say that we should emphasize the theological purposes of this gospel account, this story. Assume that a story or a scene has more vertical and theological purposes in mind uh, than moral or horizontal purposes in mind. Matthew is intending with this scene to give us some big theological and vertical things going on of who God is through Christ. Not necessarily how we can just have some more peace in our life, okay? Next is to note their unique place in redemptive history. The gospel accounts are Bible gateways between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are a hinge on which the entire Bible and the entire history of God's redemption turn. They are all saturated with Old Testament language, symbols, concepts. Hence, promise and fulfillment are almost always in view. Uh, so we should start with the assumption that a passage has Old Testament implications and connections. With each paragraph, shoot, maybe even each sentence that we read in the Gospels, uh, we should not be thinking, hey, ooh, is there an Old Testament um, text being alluded to here? We should probably not start there. We should st probably start with which Old Testament text here is being alluded to, Okay. Uh, and when you see a specific quotation, the gospel writer intends you not just to read that and move on, but when he's quoting, uh, he intends you to go back to that original context, which he's quoting from, and mine around a little bit. We saw this uh, last Sunday as, uh, in Mark 15. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Mark intends us to flip back over to Psalm 22 and root around a little bit and the whole thing. And what Jesus is saying brings a lot more depth. Um, so we should assume that there's lots of Old Testament stuff going on in nearly every verse. On the other hand, don't overlook the transitional nature of the gospel accounts. They are Bible gateways 
out of and from the old covenant to the new. We shouldn't be as dull as the, as the disciples sometimes are. There's a sense in which we do share the same fallen condition and sinful condition of the disciples, uh, but there's also a sense in which we don't. We often hear that. Oh man, I'm just like Peter, man. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's probably a sense in which that should not be true. Uh, we are on this side of the cross. Peter, in the gospel accounts, is on this side of the cross, and he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We are on this side of the cross, and we do. So yes, we'll always be somewhat dull, impatient, hard-headed, and stubborn, but Luke's, think about this, Luke's portrayal of the apostles on the Acts side of Pentecost is much different than his Luke portrayal of the apostles, right? They're not as dull and impatient and hard-headed on this side in Acts as they were over here. Uh, and I think this is what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 11, where uh, he's talking about John the Baptist, and Matthew says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has, never, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's saying, John the Baptist is the greatest man who's ever lived in the Old Covenant. He, he has gotten to see the Christ, right? And he was pointing toward the Christ. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I think Jesus is saying, the uneducated Appalachian Christian who has her Bible is in a better spot and it has a better, better capability toward understanding of the kingdom and capability of holiness than John the Baptist did. This is astounding. This, this, is, this has unbelievable ramifications and implications for our lives. Uh, the gospel accounts and acts are a great transition in God's plan of redemption for the world and his people. So, there's a lot going on that bring us back to the Old Testament. Every, nearly every verse has some Old Testament context in mind. And yet, they're moving forward as well. Uh, related, some promises and commands weren't meant for you in the gospel accounts. Um, a helpful question to ask of any biblical text is, when are we in the story? So, in the gospel accounts, when are we? We're pre-cross and we're pre-Pentecost, time where the Holy Spirit is given. If Frodo uh, was so concerned about following Gandalf's commands as he was climbing Mount Doom to throw the ring into the fire, uh, but then he said to Sam as they're halfway up Mount Doom, Sam, we have to turn back. Gandalf told us to meet him at the Prancing Pony at Bree. Sam would be like, Frodo, what are you talking about? That was like three whole books ago, right? Uh, th that command no longer is binding on us today, right? We're about to follow the other command to destroy the ring. Come on, man, let's go. So when are we in the story, right? Uh, so when Jesus tells his disciples or those he heals, tell no one of this. This doesn't apply to us, right? We're to tell everyone, uh, Take nothing with you in Matthew 10 when he, descends, when he sends the disciples out. Oftentimes, many, uh, Matthew 10 is used uh, as missionaries are sent out, and the same applications are used for missionaries, but this is not necessarily the same context. When are we in the story? Uh, so, by the way, this is helpful for New, New Testament application of Old Testament law. When are we in the story? 
We're no longer at Sinai, so we can actually have some fried shrimp tonight, right? Uh, when are we in the story? Uh, so, note their unique place in redemptive history. Seventh, they rolled downhill toward the cross and resurrection. The gospel writers, this is mind-blowing, I know, the gospel writers wrote after the resurrection. They wrote their stories after the crucifixion and resurrection. They wrote the beginning, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of their gospel accounts with the end in mind. So, we've quoted... Is it Carson who said this or somebody else that uh, the gospel accounts are passion narratives with long introductions, right? These entire things, 28 chapters of Matthew, is really just about Jesus going to the cross. It just happens to have a 25-chapter introduction, right? Uh, So when I taught through the entire Bible with the youth, I did a book of the Bible each week. As we were getting through the Old Testament, I said that there was a a building momentum in the Old Testament, like a snowball rolling faster and faster and getting bigger and bigger. Uh, And then it explodes into a stable in Bethlehem, right? It rolls down the hill and just explodes on the side of this stable. That's true, but not quite true. Uh, If I were to go back and teach, I think I might revise that to say this snowball actually explodes at the foot of the cross at the mount of the skull, Uh, and then the snowball melts and evaporates at the empty tomb when the Christ opens his eyes and gulps in the first breath and stands and walks out. That's great. So Ryan will talk a bit more about context, but again, we're in a better position than than the disciples who don't know or understand where this thing is going. We know where this thing is going. They don't at the time. Uh, Pennington, in his book, uh, he talks about we lived in, he, he still lives in Louisville. I lived there for three years. Uh, the Kentucky Derby is a huge deal. Uh, horse racing is a huge deal. And you don't just like at 4.30 in the afternoon on Derby Day just happen to click on the TV. No, you, you actually, in Louisville, you go to a Kentucky Derby party. And you might not know this, but the actual Derby is like the 13th race of the day. Uh, there are races all day long, and this is like the culmination of the day. But after the race... Perhaps you've all watched the Derby before. After the race, uh, they will show a replay of the race. And generally, they will focus in on the winner, right? And they'll show how and what he did, the moves that he made uh, to pass and conserve energy and then hit it at the stretch, right? We're focusing on the winner in the replay. We all know who won, and we're watching him. We don't care about the horse that's going to finish seventh place, right? Nobody's watching him. For three minutes or however long the derby takes, we're watching that horse. Well, it's very similar. The, the, the gospel writers know the winner of the race. They're focusing on Jesus, and they have how he won the race, right? They, they're focusing on how and what he did to get there and to win on our behalf, okay? So they are rolling downhill toward the cross and the resurrection. Uh, eight, Interpret the gospel accounts as gospel accounts, not like Pauline epistles, or not like you would the book of Psalms. We should interpret these as retelling of fact, as sermonic interpretation of fact. These are not necessarily springboards for systematic theology. 
Uh, so you might come to a text with a demon, and then you just stop down, and you're coming to this text to give you inf- and inform your entire understanding of demons and angels, of exorcisms and spiritual warfare. You come to something about the Mosaic Law or the Sabbath, and then you just stop down and you think about systematically how um, what this means for Old Covenant and New Covenant stuff. Um, that's true. We can learn a lot uh, for our comprehensive theology. Uh, but when we do this, when we read our Bibles in such a way, we basically turn the gospel accounts into an, an, to an encyclopedia. Oh, chapter... Uh, Chapter 7, and, or chapter 8, and chapter 9, this is about, this is our spiritual warfare section of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, or you name it, right? This, this is not an encyclopedia, nor is it just a Pez dispenser popping out demons, Sabbath, Old Covenant, healing, right? Uh, this is a comprehensive and big story that is coming to the cross. Uh, we're reading, when we do this, we're reading and mining the Gospel accounts topically, even though we may be going through the whole thing as a book. So this morning we're learning and honing tools needed for the interpretation of gospel accounts. Perhaps you may be saying, well, I don't know how to read it other than a Pez dispenser and encyclopedia. Well, good, we've got two and a half more hours. Uh, So, ninth, for all the distinctiveness of each gospel, the foretell of one gospel. So these are not gospels, strictly speaking. So, typically, we don't say, um, uh, this is, we're trying, I've been trying to do better about this, and be more disciplined in this, but typically, we should probably say that this isn't Matthew, or it isn't John, but it's actually the gospel according to Matthew, and the gospel according to John. Those, those, the gospel according to isn't something that Crossway in your ESV Bible uh, decided to insert 10 years ago. The gospel according to is part of the title in its original Greek. In our earliest manuscripts, those are included in the title. Uh, so it may seem like a subtle distinction to say that this is Matthew instead of the gospel according to Matthew, but it's, I think it's, it's an important one. We can't drop the according to and flatten them into just one harmonized account, like we talked about. All four gospel writers are unified in their telling of the gospel, which we might say that God has sent his son to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as it is in heaven through the saving of sinners in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I think that's a big, long definition, but I mean, that's what they are focusing on. God has sent his son to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven to save sinners through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They're telling different things about how he's done that, but that is the gospel. Uh, So they're unified in their tellings. If Matthew were to sit down and read the gospel according to Luke, he'd say, oh, oh, I see what you did there, Luke. You you changed the order of the three temptations uh, in the wilderness uh, from the way that I told it, so that you put the temple as the third temptation, where I put it as the second, but since temple is such a major theme in your gospel account, that was a good move, Luke, right? Uh, there's not conflict, and there's not um, a problem with how they are telling and interpreting 
the gospel according to how they're telling it. Uh, This is the gospel according to them. And like we said, they would tell history much differently than we would today. Uh, So for all the distinctiveness of each, the four tell of one gospel. They have a unified voice in which they are telling, teaching, and preaching. Lastly, we need to read the gospel accounts with suspense, (coughs) drama, and awe. Hopefully after this morning's workshop, you will see more, you will know more, you'll want to know more. Hopefully your appetites get a little bit more whetted when you read a gospel account. But when you close your Bible this morning, or any morning, on Tuesday morning when you wake up early and you have your coffee and you've read a gospel account or any part of the Bible for that matter, and you close your Bible, um, the final product can't just be a dizzying array of minute observations, right? About how Matthew is making all these complex Old Testament allusions and connections. That's good, and that will actually help us understand Matthew better, but if all we've done is just taken notes of the Old Testament connections and how what a great theologian Matthew is, we haven't read the Bible. Um, These four guys are expert storytellers. The problem can be just that we're so familiar with these stories, we actually miss what they're meant to do in our lives. These four gospel accounts and any biblical text that we read should drive us to worship. Augustine says this, and I think I might have it in your notes. So anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in understanding them. If you can tell all of the amazing connections that Matthew is making from the old covenant to the new and how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, but that doesn't, an understanding of that doesn't actually cause you to love God and your neighbor more, then you haven't read the Bible. Um, So I think that's a really good encouragement and challenge to me uh, from the 300s when Augustine writes this. Uh, Certainly, it can be true of me. I'm sure Ryan could say the same. And any regular preacher or teacher of the word is that we can often open up the Bible and say, what am I going to say, right? Uh, What are my points going to be and what am I going to say? Rather than, what does this say about God, about me, about the cross? And how does it drive me to worship him, loving him more, and loving my neighbor more? That's the goal.